Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it looks like the Grinch may not have been able to stop Christmas from coming to Wall Street. It looks like the Santa Claus rally came just the same. Or did it? You know, the worst Christmas Eve in the history of the stock market was followed by the biggest Boxing Day rally in the history of the stock market. Now, we don't celebrate Boxing Day here in the United States. All the other English-speaking nations celebrate that holiday, but it never came to America. But maybe we'll celebrate it in the future, given the fact that the Dow Jones rallied over 1,000 points this Boxing Day. And so that more than eradicated the 650-point drop, which was the biggest Christmas Eve drop in history. And if you recall, on my last podcast, I mentioned that following Christmas Eve's drop, the December was the worst December in stock market history. We had finally beaten out uh, the 1931 December. But I also mentioned that given the extreme oversold condition that existed in the market, that it was possible that a bounce could come at any minute and and so are any day. And I was not sure whether or not we would actually finish as the worst December in the history of the stock market because we could have gotten a rally. We still had several trading days left for the market to bounce. And that is exactly what happened. In fact, we managed to close positive on the week 
where I think the Dow finished up about 617 points. Now, of course, we still have one more day for the Grinch to have another change of heart, because if on Monday the Dow is down more than 617 points, which given the volatility that we're seeing is going to be easy to do, especially since we are no longer oversold to the extent that we were on Tuesday, then the Grinch may end up stealing this Santa Claus rally uh, anyway. So we'll just have to wait until Monday to find out. But the volatility is incredible, not just the thousand point record move on Tuesday. Percentage wise, obviously not a record, but point wise, it is a record. But probably as even more spectacular maybe than that rise was Thursday's 900-point reversal in the final 90 minutes trading because yesterday, at one point, the Dow was down about 550 points, 600 points, and then it rallied positive, all of it in the last 90 minutes of trading. A little bit of volatility today. I mean, nothing compared to yesterday. We were up and down in the morning. I think going into the last hour, the Dow was up about 200 points. I think the high was up about 250, 260, and then it sold off in the last hour to negative 155 or so before the Dow managed to lose about 70 points. So about a 350-point last hour sell-off, which, again, small compared to the 900-point rally from the previous day, but a lot of volatility. But, you know, as I said on several podcasts before, the most spectacular rallies generally occur during bear markets. Now, sometimes they occur at the peak of a bull market, kind of in the blow-off phase, but they are very typical in a bear market to get a sharp rally. And the purpose of these rallies is to raise a false sense of confidence, of complacency, to keep the frogs in the pan, you know, as the water boils, you know, getting people to uh, have hope that the market is bottomed. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened. If you look at the conventional coverage in the financial media, lots of people now believe that the bull market is over. In fact, a lot of people are now saying that, oh, it wasn't even a bear market because technically the S&P closed not, you know, 19.99 or something below its peak close. So we avoided a bear market. So it's still a bull market. Yep. It's wishful thinking. Hope springs eternal. Nowhere is that statement more true than in a bear market. But that is what we have, a bear market. And, you know, to me, if you look at the charts, this rally did nothing. In fact, you know, this was the only up week for the month of December. And it's still Still the worst December since 1931, including the rally that we had this week. I think one of the catalysts for that Tuesday rally was the report, I think, that came out early in the day by MasterCard that Christmas spending was up rather substantially. Maybe it was 5%. I forget the exact number from the prior year. So it looked like it was going to be a very strong Christmas. And it's possible that there were some people that were nervous about this holiday spending and maybe it would be a weaker Christmas. So I think the the news that consumers were out there charging stuff uh, on Christmas uh, may have been part of the reason that we've got the, the rally on Tuesday. But again, the fact that people are willing to spend money uh, on credit cards for Christmas is not indicative of a strong economy. Again, it could be indicative of the fact that people are more optimistic about the future. 
but optimism, I think, is more of a contrarian indicator. In fact, we did get a pretty big drop in a reading on consumer sentiment this week. Yesterday, we got numbers from the consumer confidence, and it was a, a pretty decent drop. I mean, they were looking for 134 uh, based on the prior month. We were 135.7, and we dropped all the way down to 128.1. That was below the range of estimates. They ranged anywhere from a low of 131 to a high of 135.6. So we blew through the lower end at 128.1. So even if consumers remain confident, their confidence is dwindling. And of course, I think their confidence is going to be completely shattered later in the year. Maybe this Christmas was the last hurrah, right? Consumers ran up one last uh, shopping spree on their credit cards. And of course, these are just preliminary numbers. So we really don't have all the final data on how great uh, Christmas was. And of course, who knows how many Christmas gifts are going to end up being returned. And so it takes a while before the final tally is done on the holiday season. Uh, but whatever, I think that it's you know downhill uh, from here. I mean, if, if consumers kind of maxed out what was left in their credit capacity in December, uh, you're going to feel that uh, in, the, in the new year. And of course, if I'm right about the economy, 2019 is likely to be the year where the layoffs begin. And so a lot of people that may have thought they were going to be employed are going to find that they no longer have jobs. And if the Federal Reserve responds the way I think, by cutting rates back to zero and doing more QE, then inflation, the consumer price index, is going to really start to rise. So just as consumers see their paychecks diminished or replaced by unemployment checks, they're going to see their cost of living going up. And so those unemployment checks are not going to go quite as far. And in fact, even the people that do manage to hold on to their jobs, uh, their paychecks won't go as far. And so the fact that they already have so much debt to pay off from consumption past means they're not going to be able to do a lot of consumption future. But getting back to the month of December, we're still going to have to wait one more day, New Year's Eve, December 31st. Remember the final Monday of the year. So if we end up getting by Black Monday a crash, then this will be the worst December in the history of the stock market. It will take out December 1931, but we'll see. But even if the market rallies again, this doesn't change anything. I mean, the best case scenario, I think, for the bulls is that this is the first correction of this new bear market. Remember, when the market is in a bull market and it's going up, the corrections are when the market goes down because you're correcting an uptrend. Well, if we're now in a bear market, the correction is the rally. You're correcting the downtrend because the downtrend is going to remain intact despite the fact that we may have a correction. Now, I don't know if this bear market rally will rise enough to officially be considered a correction. It'll probably just be a bump in the road, right? Nothing goes down in a straight line, not even the cryptocurrencies, right? They're in a massive bear market. They've got rallies. It just doesn't go down every day. You get rallies and you're going to have rallies in the stock market, especially given how much bullishness remains. I mean, there's a lot of people who are bullish, not just on the stock market, but on the U.S. economy. 
I mean, everybody is still pretty much optimistic. Maybe they differ on how fast the U.S. economy is going to grow in 2019. But if you look at Wall Street, nobody thinks there's going to be a recession. I mean, there actually are some people on Main Street now, some people in business that are starting to think there may be a recession. But all the, uh, you know, the Wall Street guys, they want to tune all that noise out. They, they don't want to hear any of that. All they want to talk about is, is how strong the economy is. In fact, if you look at the coverage, I was looking on CNBC, and these guys continue to look back at all the bear markets of the past to show that just because you have a bear market, that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a recession. Because they looked at all the bear markets, I guess, in the post-war era. They want to look at since the end of the Second World War. And they said, hey, only half the time, or maybe 55% of the time, or whatever it is, that we have a bear market, we end up having a recession. So it's like a coin toss, right? So, you know, it's 50-50, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean, just because we've had a bear market, that we're going to have a recession. But Missing from the analysis is what is different about the current economy and the current stock market, because the economy and the stock market are joined right? like never before. The entire expansion was asset-based by design. The Federal Reserve specifically said, we are going to inflate asset prices to create a recovery. We're going to create a recovery based on wealth created by inflated asset prices and we're going to uh, enable additional consumption because people are going to feel richer and they're going to spend money and they're going to be able to lever up their assets we're going to make it easier for people to go into debt to spend money in fact we're going to make it easier for corporations to go into debt to buy up their own stock so the stock market and the economy have gone in the same direction right they've they've this bubble has been inflated and so to not separate the two, to not recognize how much more dependent the economy is today on the stock market than it's ever been, or the fact that both the economy and the stock market were a function of cheap money, right? Artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. And as the cheap money is being withdrawn, then everything that was propped up is coming collapsing down. And so it's not necessarily that the falling stock market is going to cause the economy to fall, but that everything that was inflated by QE is deflating by QT. So if you look at it from that perspective, the odds of a recession either being caused by the stock market going down or a recession coming about for the same reasons that the stock market is falling are much, much higher than they've been in the past. I mean, to look at stuff that was happening in the 1950s and the 1960s, none of that is relevant to the current experience and this unprecedented monetary policy designed to artificially inflate this bubble uh, after the collapse of the real estate market and the Great Recession. So this is all just wishful thinking. People are trying to be very dismissive of this bear market and what it says about the prospects for the economy, just like people want to dismiss everything else that's been going on that is negative. You know, we got a lot of negative economic news that came out this week. Not all of it uh, was negative. You know, some of the data points beat expectations, but, you know, they're all not going to miss. But the fact that some of them did miss by such big numbers, you know, should give people uh, a reason to pause and question the narrative 
of how great the economy is. I mean, look at the Richmond Fed manufacturing number. We got this one, I think, on Wednesday. This was the biggest drop ever in the history of the index. And if you look at the, you know, the subcomponents, it was even worse. First of all, they were looking for a positive 14. Instead, we got a minus eight. I mean, so, I mean, they weren't even close to being right. But internals, the, the index of shipments went to minus 25. That's the lowest it's been since April of 2009. Where were we April 2009? The Great Recession. So you got to go back to April of 2009 for the shipments index of the Richmond Fed to be this week. And in fact, if you look at just the local business conditions index, that fell to minus 25, which is the lowest it's ever been in the history of the index, meaning it's lower than it was at any point during the Great Recession. So that's some pretty bad news. More bad news today from the uh, housing industry, pending home sales unexpectedly dropped, unexpectedly. I mean, why don't they expect a decline? They were looking for a 1.5% gain, and instead we got a 0.7% decline. And, you know, this index, I think, is down six out of the last eight months or something like that. But more importantly, year over year, this is the 11th consecutive drop uh, in this index year over year. And in fact, the overall level of pending home sales is the lowest it's been since April of 2014. And this is before the big December drop in the stock market. So I think as bad as the November numbers are with respect to housing, I think December is going to be even worse. And then, of course, 2019 is going to be a much weaker year than 2020. And so this recovery was not just about inflated stock prices. It was about inflated real estate prices. And they're all deflating. But, of course, the problem is, Americans were encouraged to take on all this additional debt during the boom when their asset prices were inflating. But the problem is when the assets deflate, the debt doesn't go away. I mean, until it's defaulted on, the debt is still there. And debt that looked manageable when it was in relation to a lot of paper assets, all of a sudden it's a much different story when the paper assets aren't as valuable, but the debt is. And then, of course, the debt becomes even more expensive to service because interest rates have gone up. You know, I've never seen so many people probably so bullish on the U.S. economy, yet so oblivious to all sorts of evidence that their bullishness is wrong. You got to go back to the summer of 2008 to find a situation where so many people were so optimistic and they had to tune out everything. And for a while, right, a few months ago, one of the reasons that people were still optimistic was that the stock market was still making record highs, right? Oh, they were, they put a lot of stock into the stock market. It's forward looking, right? Look, the stock market is telling us that everything is great. But now those same people who were relying on the stock market, now when the stock market collapses, well, they want to ignore that, right? They want to pretend, oh, this is just a, a mispricing or this is, you know, uh, we should ignore this. This is just a bunch of noise. This is just some kind of crazy trading. But, you know, the market is wrong because everything is great. And so that's why this is such a great buying opportunity because the market's got it wrong. Well, why did they have it right a few months ago and now they have it wrong? Maybe they had it wrong a few months ago. That makes more sense to me. When the market was making new highs, that's when they had it wrong. They were too wildly optimistic about the future because everybody bought into this nonsense 
about this booming economy. You know, I was on um, the Alex Jones show today and, you know, Alex Jones has been banned right on all these social media platforms. So he's not on iTunes anymore or YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, so you got to just, I guess, go to uh, Infowars.com and, you know, listen directly on his site. I hadn't done the, the show, I think, since he's been banned. It's been a while. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that Alex hadn't been having me on that much is because, you know, he's been a big Trump supporter. And, you know, I get that. I understand. I mean, I wish I could be a big Trump supporter. You know, I mean, I wish that Donald Trump was doing a lot of things that I was hoping he would do when I voted for him, although I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure that he would do those things. I just knew that there was no chance that Hillary Clinton would do the right thing. So I thought at least there was a chance uh, that that uh, Donald Trump might do the right thing. I don't know, you know, how good a chance it was, but I thought it was better than the chance of Hillary, which was zero. But as it turned out, no, he didn't do the right thing. I mean, Trump acted like a politician, not like a statesman. He tried to do what was popular, not what was right. Uh, but, you know, Alex Jones still is having a hard time, you know, wrapping his arms around that because he's agreeing with everything I'm saying about how the economy is a bubble and how it's phony. Yet he still wants to give Trump credit for the bubble and the phony economy, for trying to perpetuate it. Or, you know, he said, well, at least he at least he created some confidence. At least he got people to be confident in the economy. And I said, yeah, he did that. But confidence where it's unwarranted is a bad thing. I mean, people can get into a lot of trouble when they have confidence in something and they shouldn't when you have false confidence, right? If you think a bridge is sound and so you cross it, but it's actually, you know, about to implode, you can get into trouble, right? When the bridge collapses and you had a false sense of confidence that it was sound. I mean, I would rather warn people that the bridge is not sound and, and prevent them from, from trying to cross it. So it's not a success. It's not a good thing that Trump was able to engender a bunch of false confidence that not only you know in consumers or in small business, but in stock investors, because when that confidence proves to be misplaced, when everything implodes, which it is going to do, well, then Trump gets blamed, right? I mean, if you take credit for the boom, well, you're going to have to be, you know, have to accept responsibility for the bust. And of course, if you accept responsibility, well, then you're out of office. So Trump will never accept responsibility. He'll try to point fingers at other people, but that blame is going to be assigned to Trump and the voters are going to believe it. Look, I mean, uh, Bush got blamed for the 2008 financial crisis. He didn't cause it. Now, I mean, he just perpetuated the same uh, deficit spending policies that, that he inherited. He did what anybody else would have done. Any other career politician would have done uh, during that, uh, after the busting of the dot-com bubble and that recession. And, you know, they would have, you know, spent all this money and ran up the debt. The Federal Reserve, though, of course, was the principal architect of that bubble. And they're the principal architect of the current bubble. But just the way Obama was able to ride the blame Bush Right. That was uh, their campaign slogan. Uh, and they were able to ride that into the White House. Well, whoever Democrats nominate, whichever socialist happens to win that nomination is going to have an even easier time blaming Donald Trump uh, for the problems that will be here in 2020. I mean, this is going to be, as I've been saying, a much bigger recession than the last one. And it's because the problems that we have today are much bigger than the problems were then because the Federal Reserve was able to keep interest rates 
much lower for much longer. You know, more proof, too, that people still don't get how weak the U.S. economy is going to be looking at the dollar. I mean, the dollar slipped a little bit this week, but no big deal. I mean, the dollar index still 96.40, right? It's not breaking down. I mean, I believe it's going to break down soon, but the fact that it hasn't broken down yet is more evidence that people still haven't connected the dots. They still haven't figured it out. The price of gold is creeping higher. In fact, gold was up again today. In fact, this is the highest price that gold has traded at or closed at, I think, since the third week of June. We're just under $1,280 an ounce. We closed up, I think, $5 today. Actually, now I'm looking at the price of gold. We're over $1,280, $1,280 and $0.10. So this is the high... Uh, for the week, it's the highest it's been since June. But the gold stocks pretty much closed the week on the lows of the week. So even as gold is trading up to new highs for the week, a lot of the gold stocks are trading down to new lows. Why is this? Because again, gold stock investors are speculating on the future price of gold. The stocks are forward looking. They're trying to look forward to future earnings for gold mining companies. And people expect the price of gold to fall even as they're watching the price of gold rise. In fact, not only are investors watching the price of gold rise, they're actually watching the price of silver rise even faster. The gold-silver ratio is moving now in the favor of silver. Gold was up about 2.5% on the week, but silver was up about 5% on the week, so silver doubling. In fact, if you look at a chart we're at the highest level since early August. Now, I know that's maybe a four-month high versus a seven-month high in gold, but on the chart, it seems like a bigger breakout in the price of silver. And silver is really you know, a leading indicator for gold. If silver is moving up, then it's more likely that the precious metals complex is going to move up. And, you know, to put that move in perspective, the Dow was up about 2.7% on the week. So slightly better than the price of gold, uh, but not nearly as big a move up in the price of silver. Now, of course, you're going to hear a lot about the rise in the Dow this week, but nobody is going to be talking about the rise in the price of silver. And, you know, the Dow gold relationship, that number has come down quite a bit. I think earlier in the year, that relationship between the Dow and the price of gold was like 22, 23 to 1. Maybe it was even a little higher. I'm not exactly sure. But now it's about 18 to 1. So that's a pretty big drop in the gold price of the Dow because as the Dow has been dropping in terms of dollars, it's been dropping even more in terms of gold. But I think that is the relationship that's really going to move. Because if the Federal Reserve has to go back to quantitative easing and 0% interest rates to revive the bubble and, and stop the stock market from falling, it's going to sacrifice the dollar. And that's going to mitigate the dollar price decline in the Dow. But it's going to accelerate the gold price decline in the Dow. I'm very confident that... By Election Day in 2020, I think you're going to see the Dow price of gold less than 10 to 1. So why are people so pessimistic on the future price of gold, even as it's rising 
to six, seven-month highs because they're still optimistic on the U.S. economy. They still think the Fed is going to be raising rates, maybe at a slower pace, but they still believe the hikes are going to come. Or even if they believe the Fed is not going to hike, they don't believe the Fed is going to cut. So they think that the rates are going to remain the same. And maybe they think that uh, there's going to be a lot of weakness overseas. Maybe people think that on a relative basis, the U.S. economy is still going to be stronger than international economies, which is going to be supportive of the dollar, which is going to be a headwind for the price of gold. But of course, they're wrong. In fact, not only are they wrong about overestimating the strength of the U.S. economy, they're underestimating the strength of the global economy. I do not believe that we are going into a global recession. I think we are going into a U.S. recession. But I think the U.S. recession is actually going to be the springboard for the global expansion. What has been suppressing the global economy has been the overvalued dollar. What has been behind the overvalued dollar? The false confidence in the U.S. economy and in the Federal Reserve. Well, when that blows up, when people realize that the confidence was misplaced, when the Fed has to disappoint the markets by going back to zero and launching QE4, and when people figure out that this is a permanent policy of perpetually low interest rates or 0% rates, that the balance sheet may shrink slightly, but only as it continues to expand in perpetuity, the world is going to dump the dollar, and that is going to relieve all of the downward pressure on many countries around the world. And so as the United States sinks, that same tide is going to lift the economies of our trading partners. So when people say, oh, Peter, you're just so bearish, I'm not. I'm bullish on a good portion of the world. I am bearish on the U.S. The U.S. has been the principal beneficiary of these global imbalances. We are the ones that have been issuing the reserve currency. We have been getting the free ride on the global gravy train. We've been living beyond our means. We've been spending money that we didn't earn. We've been borrowing money that we didn't save. We've been going into debt. Somebody had to make that possible. Some people in other countries had to save the money we didn't. They had to lend us what we borrowed. They had to produce what we consumed. So you have other countries where the people have been living beneath their means to enable us to live above our means. So when this seesaw moves the other way, right, as America deals with its day of reckoning, it's a jubilee, right? All of a sudden, the rest of the world uh, gets to finally reclaim uh, that living standard that has been loaned to the United States. So our bust is going to be their boom. Now, I know people go back and say, but wait a minute, Peter, in 2008, everything crashed. Yes, because in 2008, the dollar went up. It was the soaring dollar that took down the global uh, markets. If the dollar sinks this time, which is exactly what I think is going to happen, it is going to be the opposite effect. And I know a lot of people, too, like to say, well, Peter, you know, you make all kinds of crazy predictions, right? And, you know, they don't come true. And so, you know, why should people believe this one? In fact, I, I saw some guy made this video um, last week or early this week. Um, you know, trying to, again, point out at all the things I've got wrong. And look, of course, look, nobody gets everything right, right? Not not even me, right? I, I, I get plenty of short-term calls wrong. I mean, nobody gets all the short-term calls right. In fact, most people, uh, you know, get a lot more stuff wrong than I do. 
But, you know, it's easy to focus on the things that I got wrong or at least things that I said were going to happen that haven't happened yet. So it looks like I'm wrong. It's easy to do that and ignore a lot of the stuff that I got right. In fact, I get a lot of criticism from two camps. I mean, first, I get criticism from the people in the mainstream for obvious reasons, right? All the mainstream Wall Street guys, to the extent they want to acknowledge me at all, which normally they don't. But, you know, they disagree with what I'm saying, right? Because they're always bullish. And then for political reasons, most people uh, do not accept my small government, laissez-faire, libertarian view of the way things are. So I'm going to have critics uh, that just, you know, don't like my politics. So, you know, I, I get criticized from the left because they don't like my politics. I get criticized from the right because I, they don't like my investment strategy, or now they don't like the fact that I'm not on board the Trump train, right? But then I also get criticized from people that you would think would be supporting me, like a lot of people who are, you know, in the hard money camp or the so-called gold bugs or a lot of the people on, you know, on that side of the spectrum, they criticize me too. <laughs> and in many cases, they criticize me, I think, out of jealousy or, or envy. I mean, they used to get upset that I would get all this media coverage uh, and they didn't like that. Now, I don't get the media coverage anymore, so maybe that should make them happy, but I think I still get... I still have a lot of followers, right, relative to, you know, what they've got. I mean, maybe some people make these YouTube videos and they got, you know, 500, 1,000 subscribers and they see I've got, you know, 235,000 or 240,000, whatever I've got now or um, or my podcast or what's going on. And, and so they don't like the fact that a lot more people follow me. And so they try to, you know, build themselves up by trying to tear me down. And one of the ways they do that is they try to point to things in the past where I got it wrong. And it's, oh, look, Peter Schiff said something and he got it wrong, which, of course, again, there are a lot of things that, that I have gotten wrong in the short term. But I get, you know, um, blamed or people say, hey, I got stuff wrong that I didn't even get wrong. You know, I mean, one of the things that a lot of people have liked to point out um, was a television interview that I did in 2002. And this was a show called Southland Today in Southern California. It's probably the first TV show I ever did in 2002. In fact, anybody who goes back and remembers the days of Wall Street Unspun, the beginning of Wall Street Unspun, that sound was taken from that Wall Street um, that Southland Today interview. And this interview was done after the tech bubble had burst. It was done during the bear market in 2002. And during that interview, I said a lot of things that actually came true. If you can find that interview, there's so much stuff in that interview that I said that was completely accurate. But one of the things I said that didn't happen was I predicted that the NASDAQ would bottom out at 500. And at the time of the recording, I think the NASDAQ was 1,600 or 1,700. So it went down to 1,100. I mean, it still fell sharply, you know, after I did that interview. But it never hit 500. And then here this guy is again. I've seen it before, but here he is on his YouTube video saying, oh, Peter Schiff doesn't know what he's talking about. Look, go back in 2002. He said the NASDAQ was going to go to 500, and he was wrong. It never got to 500. What an idiot. Look how wrong he was. Look, the NASDAQ went up to 8,000 or whatever it was, right? It didn't go down to 500. So don't listen to him. He's wrong, all right? Well, there's so many things wrong with that because, first of all, that assumes that I never changed my forecast, that I stuck to my 500 forecast, you know, for the next decade. 
and watch the NASDAQ go all the way up. And I kept saying it's going to go down to 500. That's not what I did. Actually, a few months after that interview, I changed my forecast. Right? The NASDAQ went down to 1100. But then Alan Greenspan lowered interest rates down to 1%. I did not realize he was going to make that mistake when I had my $500 call. In fact, I didn't just start making that $500 prediction in 2002. I first made it in 2000. When the NASDAQ hit 5,000, I was on record and in writing of predicting that the NASDAQ would fall to 500. I said the bubble would bust and it would go down by 90%. Now, most people, you go back to 2000, most of the mainstream at that time said the NASDAQ would go to 10,000. 10,000 when it was at 5,000. People were saying that the NASDAQ was going to overshoot the Dow, that the NASDAQ was going to have a higher number than the Dow Jones. That's how wrong the mainstream was. When the NASDAQ was at 5,000 and you had all these people saying 10,000 and I was saying 500, who was closer to being right? It got to 1,100, right? I was a lot closer with my 500 than people who were saying 10,000. So I had that 500 number as a target, 90% decline. Okay, it only went down 80%. And I believe had the Fed not lowered rates to 1%. Had Alan Greenspan done the right thing, my 500 price target would have been hit. But the Fed did the wrong thing. I didn't know that at the time. And I think that's why I was too pessimistic. But I changed. When I saw what the Fed had done, I changed. And I said, the market has bottomed. It's going higher. Now, I did not recommend that my clients buy U.S. stocks. Because I said, now that the Fed has slashed rates to 1%, the dollar is going to tank and gold is going to go up. So what did I do? I did the same thing I'm doing now. I told my clients to buy foreign stocks, to buy gold stocks, to buy commodities, and we cleaned up. We made a lot more money investing in foreign stocks and gold and oil stocks from 2002 to 2008 than anybody made buying the NASDAQ. Even though it went way up, it didn't go up nearly as much as everything that I was buying. So that call that I made in that Southland Today video was an excellent call. I nailed it totally on the head. But if you just want to try to take stuff out of context and not you know, follow up with everything that was going on, yes, you can go back and say, oh, Peter Schiff, look, you said the Nasdaq was going to 500. What an idiot, right? It never got to 500. The idiots were the ones that thought it was going to go to 10,000. You know? And of course, I, know I, I adjusted my forecast and I was dead on accurate. Now, yes, I did not expect... In 2008, I did not think the dollar would have this big rise because I thought the rest of the world would be smart enough to recognize the problem and run away from it instead of towards it. Well, you know, that didn't happen. The dollar had a big rally in 2008, you know, and then it surrendered those gains in 2009, 2010, 2011. Gold went on and went to 1900 in 2011. But then, of course, a bunch of idiots decided to believe that QE worked. That 0% interest rates worked. Now, all those guys were wrong, but I, you know, I don't know that the world is going to collectively come to the wrong conclusion like that. They're going to find out the hard way how, long they, how, how wrong they were. But I wanted to you know, fast forward. Another point that this guy was trying to make about why, hey, I'm just wrong all the time, was that, oh, for years, Peter Schiff kept saying that the Fed couldn't raise interest rates, that they wouldn't raise interest rates. And look, they raised them. Yes. They did. I was wrong about that. Now, 
I was right for a long time. It took the Fed a long time to raise rates. People kept expecting the Fed to raise rates, and I kept saying they wouldn't. And for well over a year, they didn't do it. In fact, after Janet Yellen raised rates the first time, the very first time, because remember I said, oh, the Fed will never raise rates. They raised rates once and all hell broke loose, and they didn't raise them again until after Trump was elected president. Now, I believe had Trump not been elected president, they never would have raised rates again, that that would have been it. It would have been one and done. And I would have been right about that. Why did I say the Fed couldn't raise rates? Because I said they would prick their own bubble and then they would look like fools and lose whatever credibility they had left when they had a reverse course and cut rates to go back to zero. I thought it would do less damage to the Fed if they just stayed at zero the whole time. Now, maybe I overestimated their intelligence at understanding that, but I do believe that what gave them the ability to get in those extra hikes was the euphoria surrounding the election of Donald Trump. Plus, of course, probably the Fed doesn't care as much about crashing the economy when they can blame it on Trump as crashing the economy when it's going to get blamed on uh, on Barack Obama or potentially Hillary Clinton. So it was very convenient that Donald Trump happened to be in office uh, and now they can finally raise rates. But it was all of the false optimism engendered by the happy talk of making America great again and winning the trade wars and the real stimulus, short-term stimulus of the tax cuts that not only helped people spend more borrowed money, but since the tax cuts were targeted to corporations and they could use those tax cuts immediately to buy back stock and jack up the stock market and create the wealth effect and let Trump talk every day about the booming stock market and the record stock market and how this proved how great the economy was so they can keep on talking about all this you know, booming economy and get people to buy the dollar, right, and buy treasuries. Well, you know, this enabled the Fed to continue to raise interest rates without collapsing the economy. Now, they can only do that to a point, which is why, you know, my previous podcast was about the rate hike that breaks the camel's back, because I knew it was only a matter of time they would have one rate hike too many, and then everything would implode. And that is exactly where we are. All this stuff has started to happen. So, I am going to be vindicated on my forecast that the Fed couldn't raise rates. Yes, they ended up raising rates. And once they raised rates a couple of times, well, then, you know, I acknowledge, well, I guess they're going to keep on hiking them until everything collapses. But of course, I am not saying that the Fed shouldn't raise rates. The Fed should have raised rates a long time ago. I'm saying the Fed should raise rates, even though raising them is going to perpetuate a crisis. Because perpetuating a crisis now is better than postponing the crisis to some future date, because then it's going to be even worse. I believe that rather than digging ourselves into a deeper hole, we should try to get out of the hole that we've dug, rather than digging it deeper and then have to get out of that. So I am never, or I'm not saying the Fed shouldn't raise rates or that it's making a mistake to raise rates. The mistake is believing that they could raise rates without imploding the economy, without imploding the markets, right? That is why I came up with that joke years ago that I, I used in my stand-up routine about the magic trick that the Fed was trying to do. They were trying to pull the table out from under the cloth, right? And expect the dishes and the cloth to levitate in midair, that's impossible. That's what they're trying to do. But that's what everybody seems to expect that they will do. Nobody is worried about 
quantitative tightening, about raising interest rates, or about what's going to happen to asset prices, real estates and stocks, and what's going to happen to a recovery that's built on that phony foundation. I mean, you can't take away all the paper wealth, leave all the debt, and expect the recovery to remain levitated in thin air. Now, there's a lot of other stuff, too, that, you know, this guy, you know, got out of context or got wrong. I, I don't want to get into the whole thing. But the point is that it's easy to go back and, and find individual things that didn't happen exactly the way I said initially or the timing didn't exactly work out. But what's more important is to look at all the nonsense that comes out of the mainstream, all the pie-in-the-sky optimism Everything is great. Everything is fine. There's nothing to worry about. And sure, as long as the bubble is getting bigger and bigger, then they look like they're right. Right? It's only after the bubble pops and the air comes out. That's when you find out how wrong they are. But at that point, you know, it doesn't matter because you're finding out after the fact. The key is to be informed early. The problem is when guys like me warn about a crisis early and then years go by and it hasn't happened yet, people get tired of waiting. And then other people can say, ah, you see, he was wrong. Everything is great. Look, you, you missed out on this huge boom in the market. I mean, this guy cost you all this money because you missed out on all this money that we're all making. Yes, you know, people missed out on the opportunity to cash in on a bubble. But most people won't cash in on the bubble, right? They're going to ride it all the way down. And all they're going to have left is the memory of the profits they never took. And what good is that, right? Nothing, right? So I would rather have the memories of the missed opportunities, but then have the one opportunity that actually, you know, worked out, right? I want to, I want to win the game in the end. I don't want to just have the memories of the woulda, coulda, shouldas, all the money I would have had if I only had sold, right? Because nobody, nobody is selling. Because the people who are in the market, I mean, they're being told constantly, turn on the television. People are being told, if you sell, you're a fool. You're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the next uh, rally. You're going to miss out on the bull market, right? Never sell, never get out, right? Well, if you never sell and you never get out and it was a bubble, you're not going to make any money, right? The people who are going to make money, the people on Wall Street, they make money regardless, right? They don't care, right? They're, you know, they're, they're getting commissions and fees, uh, regardless of what happens. But if you want to end up on the winning side of this, you've got to understand this big picture. And if you look at the stuff that I've been saying all these years, right, all this stuff adds up to what's going on right now. You know, And this is just the beginning of it. More of these pieces are going to fall into place as you watch this whole thing play out in real time. Right. As you watch this bear market grind lower, as you watch more and more of this bad economic news come out, and then all of a sudden again, we're going to get some really bad news and it's going to hit the non-farm payroll numbers. And, you know, we don't even know how bad the news are. You know, we were supposed to get the trade deficit out today, but it didn't come out. Right. We we're supposed to get the inventory numbers. Didn't come out. Why? This government shutdown is preventing a lot of economic numbers from being released. Now, maybe that's going to help people pretend that everything is good because a lot of the bad news isn't going to come out because, you know, the government is shut down. So there's apparently nobody there to release it. So that may delay some of the bad news from coming out. And then all of a sudden it comes out all at once, like in a deluge of data. But at some point, the Fed is going to be blindsided. There's going to be some horrible economic news that is going to come out 
And now the Fed is going to panic and they're going to have to slash rates. But again, slashing rates back to zero is not going to be enough if they're going to continue to shrink the balance sheet. So they're going to have to call off the shrinking of the balance sheet. In fact, they're going to have to reinstitute QE4. All of this could easily, easily happen next year, 2019. It's not going to, you know, forestall the recession. The recession is going to come just the same. Doesn't matter what they do, we're going to be in a recession. And the recession is probably going to be even worse uh, in November of 2020 than it is in November of 2019. And that, of course, is when everybody goes to the polls and decide if they want to vote for four more years of misery or if they want to vote again for hope and change and if they want to put their faith in a socialist. And you know what? Since people have nothing to lose, that's what Donald Trump used to say, right? Hey, you got nothing to lose, right? Vote for me. You got nothing to lose, right? Well, (laughs) the people who thought they had nothing to lose have lost a bunch. And so now they're going to vote for somebody else with another, you know, empty promise that's peddling a bunch of snake oil. And we know that socialism, you know, plays well at the polls, especially when you've got an electorate as dumbed down as the United States. Anyway, in case this is the last podcast that I do of 2018, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. It's possible I do another one on New Year's Eve. We'll see, depending on what I'm doing. Also, not sure how many people are are going to be listening to podcasts on New Year's Eve. Uh, Maybe they'll have a a more entertaining way of of spending it. I know some people really like to listen to my podcast, but I'd rather have my guys out there and gals uh, Uh, you know, celebrating the new year, ringing in the new year. There'll be plenty of podcasts in 2019. Uh, You could bet on that. In fact, there's probably going to be no shortage uh, of of topics for me to discuss. I'll probably end up doing a lot more podcasts in 2019 than I did in 2018. So for those of you who are looking forward to them, uh, it should probably be a pretty good year for the Peter Schiff Show. Um, and again, you know, make sure to spread the word. I want to try to have as large an audience as possible. The more people who are listening, the more likely I am to keep on talking and keep on doing the podcast. I mean, who knows if enough people are listening, I may even do them every day, right? Just like I used to do the radio show every single day. Maybe I'll do the Peter Schiff podcast every day, at least every day that I'm around. Uh, and it's easier that I don't have, when I had the radio show, I actually had to be at that mic for two hours every day, the exact same two hours, because it was a live radio show. And so I was able to do that. And I might have continued that if I thought I was making as, as big an impact, but maybe I can make the impact on the podcast. So hopefully if everybody helps me and spreads the word, 2019 could be the year that the Peter Schiff podcast really rises and starts making a more meaningful impact on, on the way Americans think and the way they view uh, the country, the government, the constitution, capitalism, the markets. I've got to try to do what I can uh, to unbrainwash the public. They've gone through the public school system, the government school system. They get a lot of their news from uh, these conventional media sources. And so there's a lot of noise. I got It's like unscrambling an egg. Uh, But if people spend enough time listening to me on the podcasts, uh, then I know I can get it done. In fact, I I get emails all the time from people who tell me, I used to be a socialist. I used to be a socialist. And then I heard you. I started listening to your podcast. And now I believe in the free markets and capitalism and Austrian economics. So I can take people all the way from the left and bring them 180 degrees uh, to the right. I just need to get them to spend some time uh, listening to my podcast. So again, 
Happy New Year, everybody. And if I don't do a podcast New Year's Eve, um, I will be doing more early in the new year. You can rest assured. 